Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunan Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 122 of the podcast, the topic is Deepfakes Are Getting Real. Our guest is Catherine Harrison, CEO and founder of FixFake. In this conversation, we talk about fake news, content wars, cybersecurity, synthetic media, digital avatars, AR, VR, computer-generated imagery, AI-assisted video calls, fake celebrity porn videos, deep learning, specifically generative adversarial nets, or GANs, and how people have been editing people's faces on pictures since the internet started. To what extent is this just innovation? And where does it get serious? Catherine, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to a smart person about a difficult topic that, uh, you know, it's entertaining and it's serious and it's visual. Deepfakes has these characteristics, but let's, before we move on to the deepfakes, I wanted to talk to talk about uh, something that's uh, not very fake, which is your very illustrious career. You you have worked at every brand name that I know and a few more. Um, how how does all that happen? Uh, you are uh, really you've been around the circle of institutions in Washington and uh, along the East Coast. Uh, I, I think I've covered that uh, also. Georgetown, Wharton, a um, lot of time in Pennsylvania, but then you're also. Uh, uh, a combination of what I like the best. So you're both sporty and you like theater. So if you, if you ever went, <laughs> um, if you ever Indeed. sit down, Indeed. if you COVID, ever sit down, what COVID do you do? has highlighted the athletic side of my life, um, but I'm really excited for theater to reopen. That's wonderful to hear. Well, look, Catherine, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, you're obviously um, an accomplished person to talk about many things, but I love that you have dedicated yourself to such an important issue. Um, I, I want to drive uh, into, I guess, why you care about deepfakes, and then we can figure out what they all are and, and are doing to us. That's a great question. So um, from 2014 to 2016, I lived in Istanbul, Turkey. I was on assignment for IBM and I was one of four expats in the office. I don't know how closely you might follow Turkish politics, but that was a very tumultuous time. There were multiple bombings. There was an attack on the airport, an attack on the Besiktas Stadium, an attack on the nightclub. And ultimately, there was an attempted coup. So it was incredibly alarming, but also fascinating to watch the media landscape during that period of time. President Erdogan had a very heavy hand in terms of the narrative that was shared Many journalists were put in jail. Um, Newspapers and magazines were shut down. Even educators were removed from their posts in his effort to solidify his view of what was happening in the country. And so I found myself as one of the few um, expats in the office 
with a very different point of view on what was happening because I was reading the English language press and I was reading what was coming from the international newspapers versus my colleagues who were really consuming only the Turkish media, which obviously was very heavily controlled by Erdogan. And so I saw firsthand how you can shut down social media, take Wikipedia offline, and literally control how an entire population sees a series of events happen. Now, this is pre-deep fakes. The first deep fake didn't ha- wasn't really created in the lab until after that. But it certainly shows the ability of authoritarians and other actors to manipulate public opinion. And when I saw my first deep fake in 2018, which was uh, Jordan Peele's PSA of Obama, I started to realize, holy cow, we are living increasingly digital lives, and yet we do not have the tools or the indicators to understand where does content come from and what is real. And I was working on blockchain at IBM at the time, and I saw a really important opportunity ahead of the 2019 election and, sorry, 2020 election in 2019 and um, left IBM to really work on this important problem. Let's handle it from the following angle, first of all. I we're gonna we're gonna go back in history because I know this is so, somewhat important. But f- first, maybe you can just uh, explain to me what is reality for you who works with deep fix. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like uh, it, maybe it's a philosophical question, but what what is, what is it that you're trying to defend? I guess. I mean, it, it is a serious question, but it, it's kind of funny, right? But uh, what what is it that you're trying to defend and and then let's get get into the history of this entire thing but what yeah that is a what, deep what and philosophical a question reality. it is 100% the core of this issue um so what i'm trying to defend as it relates to reality is understanding a few things Number one, what is the source of of digital content that we see, hear, or read? Understanding where it comes from and who created it and to what ends. Because propaganda has existed forever. You can look at the Rosetta Stone and there are, you know, falsehoods and and half-truths in there. But our... But for the last basically 100 years, because it was so expensive to create reliable or credible audiovisual media that was fake, we could basically rely upon our senses to trust that what we were seeing was real. And the main exceptions to that were if you walked into a movie theater, you knew that Hollywood was you know, whether it was um, using CGI or other sleight of hand was going to convince you of things that weren't real. And obviously there's some propaganda from, from state actors. But for the most part, it was too hard and too expensive to create things that were fake so you could generally believe what you saw. That is no longer the case. With a well, series... So, 
Sorry. I, uh, yeah, we had a little delay. I'm sorry. That, go, just go ahead. So what I want to help people understand is the intent and the source of where content comes from. Now, I love deep fakes. There's the recent deep fake of Tom Cruise, which is kind of hysterical. There are a series of applications which make it easy to have someone speak dozens of languages they've never learned. This technology can enable incredible leaps and bounds in terms of communication. But much as it can bridge those gaps, it can also be used to malicious ends. So 96% of deep fakes are deep fake pornography that are created of women without their consent. That's, that's harmful to the individual who's targeted as well as to those that star in the original production. So I want to make sure that we as humans have tools to help us understand and guide what information we're consuming. And today, there, we're really limited to the website that we're looking at, which can be easily spoofed, the newspaper or magazine that we're reading, or the people that we're hearing from. And we've seen over the last year or two just how easily that can be manipulated. And with deep fakes, suddenly it's just the next layer. And so that's what I'm trying to help people do is really understand what information they're consuming. That that was a great answer to a, an unfair and difficult first question from my my part. <laughs> so you have lined up the history, you know, kind of of synthetic media. And yes, you know, even in the ancient Greeks, and you went even farther back to the Rosetta Stone, but basically automated art, and then, you know, CGI with, with Hollywood since the 70s. Uh, so suspending this belief, you know, for an audience purpose, when you know you are an audience is clearly, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's deep fake, but it is fake. Uh, but, it, but you know, that somewhere in there, there is a fake element, which we call fiction, you know, and we have accepted it as a genre. But, you know, when you're talking about swapping up celebrity faces, uh, swapping them out, I don't know if a lot of people, you know, cry massive tears about that, but it gets a lot more serious for the individual when we realize this could be us. Can you give us a sense of uh, also the technology behind this? So if I understand correctly, the real deep fakes that were sort of concerning to the mass audience started appearing even as recently as just uh, three, four years ago, right? Yeah. So why don't I start by defining deep fake versus cheap fake? Because I think deep fake is okay. suddenly yeah. overtaking the whole universe and it actually re refers to something very specific. So yeah. deep fakes are audio, visual, images, text um, that are created using machine learning technology. And actually, this was first developed by um, a Canadian man by the name of Ian Goodfellow at the University of Montreal. Um, I think he wrote the first paper in 2016. So this technique uses a machine learning algorithm called a generative adversarial network. You might hear the word GAN thrown around. So I think it's nice to at least understand from a basic sense what that means. 
And so the way that a deep fake creates content is it starts with a source database. So that might be tens of thousands of images of women or men or hippopotamuses, if you want. And then it has what's called, there are two algorithms, one that's called a generator algorithm. And that algorithm is trying to create new pictures based on information that it's learning from that training data set. And then you have what's called the discriminator. So for each image that the generator creates, the discriminator compares it to the original training data set. And it basically says, okay, I can tell this is original and this is fake. And so that the generator algorithm gets better and better over time until the point at which you can no longer tell the difference between the generated image and the training data set. And so that's, in it's almost like counterfeit money. You keep creating and creating and creating until no one can tell the difference. So deep fakes use machine learning AI technology. Cheap fakes are everything else that's existed for um, all of history. So think about tools like Photoshop, video editing, um, audio dubbing, speeding up, slowing down, etc. And what's fascinating is that as you look at what's happened over the last year, particularly in the U.S. election, there were a couple of deep fakes, but they were not the main problem. It was cheap fakes and real information that was miscontextualized. So that is the difference between cheap fakes and deep fakes. Both are a problem. Cheap fakes in some, in some ways are far more pernicious because they're much easier and cheaper to build. But deep fakes can create this caliber of video and audio that is incredibly difficult for humans and machines to distinguish. And I think that technology in the last 18 months has made leaps and bounds in terms of the time and cost to produce content. And so that is only going to increase from here. You can already get access to deep fake technology in Snapchat. Zoom uses it to help in low internet areas. So that gives you the lay of the landscape. I hope that clarifies. Uh, well, I, I, it clarifies some things, but I guess it makes other things more complicated. I'm starting to realize that I might be using technology like that in, a, in, in many in sort of everyday applications for me when I'm editing photos for my podcast, taking away the background of people. You know, there's a an incredible algorithm involved in the various, uh, you know, programs that I, that I use for that. And then I casually put these people in front of my, my you know, uh, in front of my own images. And uh, I guess that is a hybrid of, of cheap and, uh, and, and deep because I'm sure the algorithm used was deep, but the intent is not malicious. I mean, it seems to me that there is an enormous amount of innovation also happening within this space. So how do you, as you're investigating these things, I mean, GANs, apart from this very negative connotation that you gave it, it has also made tremendous, uh, you know, it has a tremendous importance in healthcare and in other fields because precisely this level of image recognition and manipulation 
you know, is uh, behind pathology reports and, uh, you know, cracking cancer and uh, identifying disease. 100%. I mean, the technology behind deep fakes is helping humans do incredible things, whether it's you talked about healthcare, whether it's helping develop self-driving cars, whether it's being able to generate data to help humans explore places you would never want to put an actual human, and not to mention the entertainment and communication um, examples, which we've talked about. I love deep fakes. I think they're great, and I'm a huge advocate for the technology. But technology is ultimately Yeah, and had it not been for that, I mean, sci-fi... Totally. Yeah. I mean, sci-fi, right? It's all full of it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I'm worried about is that it takes humans and human society decades, if not centuries, to catch up to some of the biggest developments in technology. And we're seeing this technology improve and develop at an incredibly rapid pace. So it's really critical to me that that question of intent and where does the content come from and how do these algorithms get used be part of the conversation that technologists, policymakers, educators, business leaders, and even just simple consumers are aware of and thinking about. Because otherwise, we risk being in a place where anyone can create any story. It's far easier and cheaper to create fake news than it is to create real news. And we lose some of the foundations that are needed to build trust across democracies, to create credibility for experts. And so what's important to me is... I'm not trying to shut down this technology. I actually want to help it grow faster, but to do it in a way that honors human rights and values the humans that are being depicted or used in some of those images, whether it be as part of the training data or in the ultimate images or video that result from the technology. Because the harm and... Can I stop you? And Sure. Uh, I, I I was just curious to to hear if you see any parallels between this technology and I know there's been an enormous debate over decades and decades when it comes to regular photographs of ind- indigenous people, right? And even the Harvard Library now famously and, and various other libraries or, or collections uh, have been so it's, it goes into this uh, history of you know who owns the artifact is it the person that is the artifact or is it you know or, or is it the photographer or is it the institution that took it and, and was there some violence committed and you know who uh, you know who are you representing um, isn't this discussion the same actually even though the technology perhaps right now seems far simpler because it was simply a photo- you know a photography. But back then, it was arguably a violation into people's reality because you were depicting something that was a fleeting moment, maybe, in someone's life. Maybe, you know, and, and you can do this for, like, I, I think there have been educational series also accused of this when they were filming Indigenous people who were, like, one month a year, you know, on some sort of 
you know, journey into their history. And that's what they do only for the month of uh, July. But the rest of the year, they live in houses and don't hunt the old fashioned way. And then it becomes depicted as if they are that and only that because you took a snapshot of the reality. Is this fundamentally different? I mean, obviously much more advanced because you can you can create completely new contexts. I think there are really important lessons to learn from those examples that you just shared. Um, the harms are actually twofold as it relates, relates to deep fakes. So one is the scale of distribution. So um, obviously the photographs that are taken of indigenous people outside of their permission or outside of context that then went into libraries and books were violated a whole set of norms that today we would find completely unacceptable. And obviously norms have evolved tremendously over the last hundred years, as have disciplines like anthropology um, and others. But what makes this, for the first reason that makes this technology is that suddenly it's not just in books and libraries, it's in front of hundreds of millions of people with zero context, with often zero attribution, with very little information. So the speed and scale of the damage that you can do is far greater than what was previously possible. So I think this needs to take the historical lessons in conversation to the next level with understanding what the implications of that distribution scale are. And then second, which you you certainly alluded to and said yourself, not only can you take something out of context, and miscontextualization is one of the most frequently used and compelling forms of disinformation, but you can completely make something up that has no basis in reality and you know, in physical actions or interactions that may have happened. And so then you can literally make up whatever you want and then spread it with very little, um, very little in the way of barrier to entry to the entire world. And so whether you think about this harming individuals, companies, or society at a whole, you need to both think about the creation and who is behind that, as well as the distribution platforms. Can you tell me a little bit about what to do about it? So I, I'm getting a clear sense of the kinds of examples that m might be deep fake. And I'm, I'm even reminded of things like the robocalls that you get. And I guess in the future, they would be complete video calls that you're just like, you cannot know whether this is a person, is this a celebrity calling me or... Am I just making this up? You know, is a TV show calling in or like, am I on TV? Could I be one of the 5,000, like, you know, one in a hundred thousand that gets called up or is this just fake? Like, it's going to be really hard to know any of these things, but what, so what is there to do about it? So I'm, I'm assuming even just identifying the categories and, and fully understanding what could be fake is step one. Absolutely. So there are a few different pieces to that. There are things that you can do today as an individual. There are policies that can be made by companies, by governments, by broad organizations. 
And then there are the long-term steps that we can take in the technology itself. So um, maybe I'll, I'll start with the individual and go from there. So as an information consumer today, it's so important to understand where does the information you're getting come from? Where else is it corroborated? Who else is reporting similar information? And what are the standards of journalism or integrity that they might um, that they might follow or adhere to? And in every country, there are journalism organizations that have very rigorous standards for understanding that information. So that's first. The second thing is often to look at the tone of the headline or the tone of the video to see if it is really trying to elicit an emotion. Because if it has an incendiary title that's trying to make you take action or immediately hit share on Facebook, that's almost always a sign of some sort of opinion or propaganda that's behind it. Now, that may be good, that may be bad, it may be based in fact, it may not, but it should be a trigger, you know, beyond the URL, beyond the source that, huh, somebody's trying to get me to do something with this piece of information. And then finally, individuals can be their own personal circuit breakers. So, you really should never share information unless you've gone through those first two steps, tracked where it comes from, corroborated that this is not just a single point of view or a single report, and really refrain from sharing anything that you wouldn't be happy to stand in the middle of your town square and have your name attached to when, um, when sharing that. And I think we've lost a little bit of those um, those criteria for what information we share. We've, it's now so easy, no matter what social platform you're on, to, to, to share that information. And it's now a way of connecting with others. And you really want to think about that quality of connection. Just because your crazy Uncle Jim sent something, is it really real? Do you want to be associated with that? And I think that... Gen Z and some of like the teenagers are actually doing a much better job at sniffing out what's real and what's not than um, their parents and grandparents. So that's kind of the first how we as individuals can take a little bit of control over what we're seeing. Um, second, do you want me to, the second piece is to think about the policies, both corporations and organizations need to have policies about how information gets released, you know, how they track where content comes from, how it gets shared, employee data, et cetera. Um, and then governments have another. So, important um, I, I want to talk. I want to talk. Sure. Yeah, Sorry. I want to talk I about so that. I think we, we have a tiny delay. No, 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 no. It's not that we have a tiny delay, which we, we will work on. Um, I want to ask you a telltale sign of a fake. I, which I'm assuming is relevant at every level. So it's not that it has to be handled only by the individual, but give me some telltale sign, uh, signs of a fake in a, in a video. So I'm looking at a video. Is it a real video? What do I do? Yeah. Um, so here are some telltale signs that work today. 
In six months or 12 months, they may no longer be relevant. But a few things. You often look for semantic differences. So for example, if I was if the woman was wearing two mismatching earrings, that can be the type of sign that a machine learning algorithm wouldn't pick up. They're both earrings, they're both on ears, but they wouldn't notice that they don't match. The other areas to look at are shadows and um, and dark places, particularly inside your mouth, the shadows on your ears and sort of necklines or any of the kind of natural connection points in the body. Um, very often the algorithms will sort of smooth those out, but you won't see the light often that you, the shadow that you would have, you see from my chin onto my neck, won't be quite as realistic as what you're seeing today. Um, some of the old tricks for finding fakes were if the person isn't blinking. A year ago, that worked very well. But now everyone saw that fake videos don't blink, so they fix the algorithm so that they do blink. So, you know, those are some of the signs. Um, you can People also often look for a um, uh, sort of a, a space between the words, the mouth movements, and the sound that's coming out. But candidly, with most deep fakes, that has gotten very, very good. And most creators are now editing so that you don't have that delay. So that's where you can start. Um, and I think in another few months, I'll have a different list for you to take a look at of potential fake tells. Um, I find it very interesting because, you know, in, in running a podcast, I've gotten quite involved with editing, both of audio and video. And even though I wasn't fully aware of, or I am not fully aware of the origins of all the algorithms that I'm using, which probably is an issue as well, because all of these programs that you're downloading, right, even from famous makers, they use all kinds of algorithms. But, but it strikes me that even as an amateur who's kind of spending some hours a day doing these things, you get to a level where you can produce videos uh, that obviously are picking out the best aspect of a person <laughs> and of myself. So it's like slightly <laughs> self-serving. But, you know, I am on it without a blink. I, I edit out, like if there was a delay here in our conversation, and if I, you know, find it, I will smooth it out. And if there's an audio issue, I even have a software that I, I've been reading, f I think, two hours of my own voice. So now this particular transcription software can generate new phrases. So if I thought I should have said the sentence, I can write in a sentence and the software would generate my voice and actually pretend I said that sentence. Now imagine that software traveling. So my voice print is with this company. Reminds me of, you know, when I sent my samples to 23andMe. You know, these are scary days. My voice print is now in the hands of one individual shall be unnamed company. But, you know, how scary is that? And, and that's just me, right? And you amplify that by someone famous and, and important. And uh, now you have their voice print. And, and I'm sure you can get the voice print off of any clip on the internet. And if you're Tom Cruise, like you pointed out, you don't have to go far 
And, you know, right now they need two hours for the voice print. Next year, they're going to need half an hour. And then, you know, the year after that, they need two minutes of your voice print and they can fake your entire, uh, you know, vocabulary. No, there's really important implications for data privacy. Who owns your likeness, your voice, your image? Um, New York State actually just passed a law that gives the estate of a deceased actor the ownership of their likeness and voice for a period of, I think it's 40 years. Um, and if you've seen any of the recent Star Wars, Carrie Fisher had died prematurely while they were in the midst of filming. And with the permission of her estate, they put her back into those movies. But prior to that law in New York, as an individual, once you're dead, you have you neither you nor your estate had any rights over your likeness or your voice. So these are going to be sorts of questions that are going to really present themselves first in Hollywood for sure. But there's another website, I think it's called My Heritage, which enables you to take a picture of a deceased loved one and animate them. Um, right now, they're not allowing you to do voice, but soon I'm sure that will be a feature. And then there start to be a whole set of questions about do as like as a society as individuals do we want to give that opportunity and and right to our estate who who owns that who makes money off of it um and that's just once you're dead once you're when you're alive um think about the fact that your data privacy varies substantially whether you're in Europe or the United States i mean gdpr has set some some stakes in the ground, but if you get filmed in China, that is 100% the property of the Chinese government. So these are questions that really go far beyond the technology into, you know, to your question of reality, what do we want to be recorded and kept? How do we track the provenance? Um, Adobe is spearheading an initiative called the Content Authenticity Initiative, which is trying to track where do images come from, how do they get edited and manipulated, and it's an important first step in this process, but there are much bigger questions that we have to answer, um, even once you have that data. So let's uh, let's then move to talk talk about the business uh, level of this, and which will get us into regulation and self regulation and standardization and all kinds of uh, good things. In addition to some of the excesses that certainly are happening when you're trying to innovate, um, where is this battleground right now? I mean, in other words, is this with the big tech firms mostly? So, I mean, Adobe in this case, it, it would be a big tech firm, especially because of their expertise in in this particular area. Uh, but more famously, right, it's the kind of the the fan companies and, and and those kinds. Or is it a much wider discussion in your mind? Because it also is possible, perhaps, to use these algorithms without having an enormous company behind you. Um, and and uh, and you know building sort of questionable business models on top of something that that really is uh, built on on the idea of of creating fakeries. Really important question. So 
the fang companies, most of them, ha actually have policies about deep fakes. Officially, you're not allowed to distribute deep fakes on Facebook or YouTube or most of the major social media platforms. Their ability to enforce that is challenging because it is still quite difficult to detect deep fakes. And there is that question of where do you draw the line? Tom Cruise video is a deep fake, but it's entertaining. The intent is not really malicious. It's more of a PSA versus the deep fakes that are cropping up of TikTok influencers who are under the age of 18, which are often pornographic in nature, which is really terrible. So the, the major tech companies have a really important role to play in policies and distribution of these assets and making sure that their algorithms aren't further promoting them so that they get seen by the hundreds of millions of people that are part of their audience. They also have control of some of the largest data sets of human faces and videos. And so the way in which they use that technology to create algorithms, et cetera, really requires, in my opinion, far more transparency um, and far more detail than is available today, quite candidly. Um, that said, they're not alone. So, um, Pornhub, which is one of the largest pornography platforms, um, actually made some really substantial changes to their business model over the last six months. So they officially had a policy of no deep fake porn, but the credit card companies jumped in and said, we will no longer process your payments if you are not able to actually shut this down. I think it was happening principally with people underage, but candidly across the board. And Pornhub has implemented incredible controls because their very business was at stake. So there are ways that you can actually leveraging, particularly the financial system, shut down the monetization of um, malicious deep fakes. So that's first. But then the second thing yeah. to keep in mind it, is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that your your example with porn is interesting in and of the uh, fact that, you know, that particular industry has always been one of the innovators on the Internet, right? I mean, from, from the beginning of the Internet, they have just been an enormous category of content, uh, you know, and um, arguably drove the first, you know, both the first, the second and the third wave of, of traffic and, you know, if you can uh, control or at least shape that industry uh, in, in a way, then I, I guess that, prom that that makes a good indication of what can be done uh, elsewhere. So that's very interesting. And you think financial instruments are the most powerful in this regard? At the end of the day, it's all about the money, right? I mean, if... Yeah. If whether it's subscriptions, whether it's ads, I mean, most of these companies would say officially they don't permit this content, they won't distribute it. But if they allow ads on related content, if they have subscriptions, there are lots of ways to make money around it. And I think that's where um, there is a lot of opportunity to help disrupt um, this space. One of the things I wanted to point out before we get to the governments is that it seems like your example is one where 
there was industry self-regulation because clearly if you were the financial industry, they, they would have realized that it was a reputational risk for them whether or not it is regulated. Now, of course, some of these things are, of course, also regulated, so they would ultimately get in trouble for it, perhaps. But it's not a clear-cut case, it seems, where you absolutely have to sit there and wait for a government to act. And by the way, which government would that be, right? Because this is a global problem. So tell me a little bit about this very complicated dynamic between economic actors on the market and whether they need to really sit it out and wait for what the regulation is going to be or whether they can actually, in some cases, just do what's common sense, which is let's take some action here. Yes. So I think the answer is is a mix of self-regulation and then obviously when and where appropriate layering in different types of government policy and regulation. Um Candidly, many companies last summer had to deal with boycotts, not because things were illegal, but because customers were unhappy, whether it be with conspiracy theory videos, you know, not even necessarily related to deep fakes, but there is a sense of integrity that most brands want to uphold and therefore will put policies in place about the content, about the ad spend, about their brand protection. And Candidly, they're doing it in self-interest, which is great if that's what um, if that's what it takes. I think that's really, really important. I think we find problems when self-regulation doesn't go far enough. One of the biggest problems is that if I were to find a deep fake porn of myself today, my options to get that content taken down are extremely limited. So I would contact the administrator of whatever social media platform it's on and file a complaint. I'd have to try and figure out every single platform on the internet that that content might be posted to. Um, I'd have to call a lawyer to basically send cease and desist letters. Often that content can stay up for weeks, if not months on end. And there aren't um, there aren't standardized, easy ways to get malicious content taken down. So the more that companies can can really draw that common sense line, this is malicious and harmful, and so we're not going to permit it or tolerate it or monetize it, um, the better it is across the board. Um, transitioning to the question of governments, it's a really, really tricky proposition because there are many emerging markets where deep fake laws are being used to silence the opposition and journalists, basically saying that any report that doesn't conform to the government's interpretation is a deep fake and then putting journalists in jail, etc. So there's another deep philosophical question of, do you trust the government and their ability to make policies? Um, and I would argue that there are certain countries where there is more trust and more faith and more connection to human rights and democratic ideals and other countries where that is far less and national deep fake policies are actually far more harmful to human rights and democracy than a lack of policies. So 
it really is a thorny, challenging issue that I think you have to really look at country by country, society by society. Um, and that doesn't work well in a globalized, decentralized internet where you have content that can go from one place to the other. And, and there's a lot of benefits and advantages to that. Like I think decentralization of the internet actually needs to be greater and there needs to be more um, freedom and flexibility. But, um, but that is the fundamental question. For example, in the U.S., Texas has a law about deep fakes. Every single lawsuit that's been created um, related to deep fakes in elections in Texas is where someone didn't like the opposition's um, ad about them, not that it was created with a deep fake and they want to tie up the person in litigation in a huge cost of dealing with the lawsuit. So not a straightforward question either. Well, censorship is a difficult issue. It would strike me that, you know, in terms of artistic freedom, that's not going to be a massive issue, but as art and creative freedom stretches into news media and, you know, entertainment blends with, uh, you know, edutainment, right? It becomes a thornier issue. So it's not, I mean, you, you were sort of framing it into, this is kind of like, do you trust the country? But I'm, I'm sort of left with not an enormous confidence in any country that, that we would, always make the right determinations here. And I certainly don't trust individuals in various countries or, or you know, the, I, I don't trust every individual to make the right choice, right? So of some course. amount of regulation or at least discussion about what, what is the morally right thing to do would have to just keep an ongoing di dialogue, I guess. Yes. So the dialogue is critical um, and you have to, you have to start by people even understanding what this is and that it's possible. So that's the first piece. And then the dialogue is where do you draw that line between freedom of speech, creative expression um, versus censorship? Where's the line for harming individuals as public figures versus private figures all of these lines are getting blurred, especially when you start to see suddenly a 14-year-old in Australia is a TikTok phenomenon. Is she a public figure? Is she a private figure? What rules is she, you know, and someone creates a deep fake of her outside of Australia, where's the jurisdiction to deal with that? Um, so you need not only dialogue within countries and within governments and across civil society and, and government, but you also need it across governments, especially if you think about transatlantic dialogue between the U.S. and Europe. I think we're at a moment when it's really important to have these conversations as technology is reshaping, certainly through COVID, how we live, how we work, how we communicate, how we negotiate, how we trade. Um, and so I think dialogue is critical. A, a key set of, of terms of, you know, I, 
it might seem sort of academic to define deep fake and cheap fake, but it helps to make sure that everyone's on the same page when you're talking about something like this, which is unfortunately nuanced and quite complex. Um, and then I think it's also um, really facilitating engagement between technologists who are thinking about how do we, what's the next coolest, greatest, newest thing we can do, and what are the potential impacts on society? Doctors have had the Hippocratic Oath do no harm for millennia, and I think we're getting to the moment where technologists need something similar so that they are trained from their earliest days as developers to think about how the technology that they're building is going to impact humans. Um, Facebook, I think it was Andy Bosworth, who's one of their senior executives, said in 20 or 30 years, we won't have phones. We'll have watches, implantables. How are you going to know what to trust when the information is being piped directly into your brain? And I think it's really important that we start to solve and tackle and discuss some of these issues today before the implications are far more severe and, and, and far more difficult to untangle. Um, this is fascinating. I have a question as we're sort of like um, moving to uh, the, the last part of, of, of our conversation. Where do people go? You said definitions are important and I know you are engaged. Tell us a little bit about uh, your initiative and other initiatives and newsletters or what have you, governments that have done a good job, like where should I go if I'm somebody who is alerted to these issues now and I want to stay up to date, I want to track it, I want to have opinions about it, I want to, I guess, blog about it and, and, and you know, have an informed tracking of, of deep fakes. Great question. So Deep Trust Alliance is focused specifically on deep fakes and their malicious misuse. And we really convene all of the stakeholders in the ecosystem from academics who are developing some of these algorithms to startups, which are building platforms to create synthetic media, to civil society, which is worried about um, personal data and privacy and um, digital harms to government actors. Um, we're largely focused in the United States, but we have partners in Europe and really see that this has to be done broadly. So we are focused on the policy solutions, both for companies, private organizations, and national governments to really facilitate this dialogue, understand what the implications are, and think about practical policies. And so that is how Deep Trust Alliance um, targets it. Would love for you to follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn. In addition, there are a variety of other initiatives which are tackling this from a couple of different directions. I cannot say enough good things about Witness, which is an NGO led by Sam Gregory, which is focusing on helping journalists um, and opposition use audiovisual materials to document 
human rights abuses, um, and other sorts of challenges across the globe. They're incredibly thoughtful, not only about the technology, but also about its implications for civil society, et cetera. Um, there's another organization called First Draft, which is focused on journalists in particular and helping them in this age when you have to turn around news stories in seconds to try and get the headline, to try and beat the news to market. How do you begin to separate the wheat from the chaff and the, the real content from what is fake. And they do an incredible job creating playbooks and tools and kits for journalists to help them do their jobs. Um, and then I mentioned already the content authenticity initiative spearheaded by um, Adobe, but with partnerships with BBC and Microsoft and others, um, which is trying to set up standards for from the device, literally from the time you take a picture, how can you then track where that content um, goes, how it gets edited and manipulated? So those, I think, are some of the, the key organizations that I would look to. Um, they have great newsletters um, and certainly their Twitter followers as well, or Twitter um, accounts provide great information. The last thing I have to say is Joan Donovan um, is at Harvard, and she leads the, um, the misinformation review. I think it's out of the Kennedy School. And it's an academic journal about disinformation and misinformation and deep fakes and all of those fun topics. And while it takes an it's obviously an academic publication, I think it really um, captures a lot of what's happening across the landscape from journalism to policy to technology. So um, we have a whole reading list that I'm happy to share that's on our website. So um, we try and make it as accessible as possible. Well, Catherine, that's fantastic. But my, my I guess my last set of two questions is going to be wildly challenging in this domain, which I realize just because things are moving so fast. We were just talking about how a year ago the landscape was different because the algorithms are adapting. If you look five to 10 years into the future, and then just to warm up your brain for the next question, 50 years into the future, where, where is this going in this specific field of deep fakes? So if, if you just take the next yeah, call it five or ten years. You can pick, pick, pick which one. Let's call it a decade. Like, does it one depend on where the algorithms are going, or two depend on this uh, conglomerate of like common sense and government regulation? And 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 how different could it possibly be a decade from now? This discussion. Oh. I see two visions of the world and they're starkly different. So there is one vision of the world where almost all of the free content that you see is garbage. It's deep faked. It's, um, it's pushed by specific political entities with certain agendas and anyone that isn't paying for news content is probably getting information that is heavily biased, heavily manipulated. 
you could argue that we're already in that world, but this takes it to the extreme um, with videos, with images, with audio, to the point that um, when you combine the technology of deep fakes with micro-targeting, I might see totally different versions of a set of events than my husband sees because of our individual preferences and experiences. So that is the dystopia um, I would put that's kind of the worst case scenario in 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. I'm personally more optimistic. I personally believe that people want to know what's true and that while they might enjoy looking at the conspiracy theories at some point, they want some foundation of what is real. And so I think what hopefully we will see in five to 10 years is there will be a set of badges or a set of indicators that help you to understand as a regular information consumer um, how many different edits or iterations, not necessarily in all of that detail, but perhaps a red, yellow, green flag where this we have clear history and provenance of where this information comes from Yellow, we sort of have questions, and red, you shouldn't necessarily trust this. I think the more that we can have even just simple visual indicators and circuit breakers on social media where you can't share certain posts unless they have some level of provenance information or you can only share it to a certain number of people or something that can take the edge off of the velocity with which misinformation happens will be really important. And look, we've already seen Twitter and Facebook really step up uh, around COVID misinformation and certainly at the end around U.S. election information. So we've seen that it's possible we need to see the business model that actually drives that much more um, kind of journalistic approach to information sharing and creation. So that's that's the world I hope we live in in 10 years' time. And there will be algorithms, there will be fake content, and it might be, you know, flagged as this is created with XYZ deep, deep fake algorithm. But if you know who the content and the creator is, like you know the intent of the material, then maybe it's okay. Maybe you don't ever have to say a word on a video again. You can just type it out and that will spit out um, your words. Hmm. Um, and in 50 years, I see um, sort of the far more extreme versions of both of those. I mean, I see, you know, a, a world where literally you have – like you literally come to trust only a very small group of people that you're perhaps physically interacting with because you don't have any of the tools to understand the difference. Um, almost like a return to dark ages. I don't think that's where we're going. I don't want that to be where we're going, but that is one very dark place that we could go. Um, the other place we could be in 50 years is we have streams of data that are coming into into our brains, into our ears that are providing us with information. And we set specific parameters and controls around, you know, only accepting information with certain sources of credibility. There are all sorts of challenges and problems with that. I think we have to figure out the data privacy norms and regulations. 
We have to figure out what is our threshold for reality, for art, for satire, for for creative expression. Um, But I think getting a little bit a little bit more clarification on all of that is what's going to be critical when we may live in a world where we're interacting with most people through virtual reality, through um, implantables, etc. So these are questions that I think we have an absolute imperative to start answering now before the technology is so far ahead of us that we we don't have it, we don't stand a chance. Well, thank you for entertaining me on this somewhat complicated question of the next 50 years. It just strikes me that a lot of our discussion has been on intent. And I sort of question how we will be able to judge intent in an age where sensory data is like flowing in. Like how can sensory data have an intent? I guess someone had an intent at some point, but it it gets complicated. It gets very complicated. And I think intent comes from the sources of the data and not just about your own physical body, obviously. Um, But I think there are questions that we don't even know to ask yet that will suddenly, um, that will suddenly appear in front of us. And we're just scratching the surface on those with deep fakes. Well, I thank you so much for for this discussion. It certainly is an area that deserves to be thought about, but also, like you said in the beginning, it deserves to be experienced because this is not a, doesn't seem to be an area that you have to shy away for, from. We are enjoying the fruits of the labor of all these computer programmers on an everyday basis, and so should we, right? This is a great source of entertainment progress, perhaps even great medical breakthroughs. But at the same time, the other side of the coin seems really dark. And I thank you for that reminder. Absolutely. Chan, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I appreciate both the kind of deep philosophical angle as well as the much more practical, what do we do about it? So thank you. You're welcome. You have just listened to episode 122 of the Futurist podcast with host Ronar Nehunheim, futurist and author. The topic was deepfakes are getting real. In this conversation, we talk about how deepfakes is getting to be a serious problem and what to do about it. My takeaway is that deepfakes was, until quite recently, an esoteric topic. We had all seen innocent versions of it on playful apps, but I think many of us assumed it would be easy to tell the real thing. Not anymore. The ramifications are enormous. We will soon not know what reality is. We cannot trust documentaries. We risk that others try to misrepresent us online, but also in the real world. What will this do to an already broken trust between people and media institutions? What happens to privacy? What happens to cybersecurity? We should count ourselves lucky that there are people like Katherine Harrison watching our back. But is it enough? I'm left with more questions than when I started. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 102, The Geotech Decade, episode 69 on the future of quantum security, or episode 28 on the future of child trafficking. Futurized, preparing you to deal 
with disruption.